0: It is a center for higher learning.
1: It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast.
2: and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, episode 84. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Murph.
0: And I'm Keeper John. And today we delve into Secret Wars with Cubicle Seven's line developer for World War Cthulhu, Scott Dorward.
3: Good morning, gentlemen. And can I say just how excited I am to be on the any nominated Miskatonic University Podcast?
0: Oh. Hey, oh. well,
2: you're too you. kind, thank sir.
1: Very, very <laughs> kind. Uh, and I am Keeper Chad. Welcome.
2: So let's go straight into the uh, campus choir. Crier. So let's the go. The campus uh, choir.
1: <laughs> choir. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. So, so, we're, so we're, going, we're going to sing all the news articles, are we? You should be used oh, to that. mean, I dare you. Sing? Yeah, let's. uh <clears throat> We have to do it acapella, though. That's the only difference.
1: Dan, please auto-tune all this. Yes. <laughs> Miskatonic
3: University Campus Crier.
2: The Campus Crier is Miskatonic U's student paper. Here's where we go through all the mythos-related news and feedback to the podcast. This episode was recorded on July 12th, 2015. And for some reason, we're singing the news items.
1: We're not uh, no. seeing the news of no. <laughs> However, there is a new Q&A thread on YSDC that's worth mentioning. It's called Ask Sandy, and he is actually available and responding. And there's a lot of interesting news there. Um, you can post, a, we've got a link in the show notes to the thread. Uh, one of the things that is newsworthy is uh, somebody asked if there is a rough idea when the print versions of 7th edition will be available to the public, and he very generally, but still newsworthy, says our goal is to get Call of Cthulhu 7th edition fulfilled as soon as possible, certainly by the end of the year, which is actually the first time we've heard anything specific, I think, since the turnover, And uh, but there's no firm date in hand yet.
0: Right, which that's, is... I mean, that's really good news. You know, I'm, I'm excited. Hopefully, I'll have that stuff available by the end of the year. That'd be great.
2: I'm... I'm um i'm not doubting that date i'm just i'm reticent to believe it at this point because i know that they haven't gotten the to the printer yet and things can happen once it does get to the printer and there's no proofs there's there's a lot that still has to be done between now and then you and, still uh, get lots of hurts feels don't you no i just don't i it's that's just the print industry in general i mean uh, having uh, yeah. someone someone ha- having someone who actually works in the print industry scott on board i mean he'll be more than apt to to describe any of the number of pitfalls that can happen between going to print and oh, yeah. actually getting a proof that's worth.
3: Well, I, actually, happily, I'm shielded from a lot of that stuff in my work. Um, mostly, I just get the words together and then then leave all the production stuff to people who know that kind of thing a lot better than I do. Fair enough,
0: and and that is true. I mean, depending on who they're getting printed from, you never know what kind of uh, uh, backlog that they've got to slog through before they can get you know back to the, you know. To their point in the cube so yeah agreed taken with grains and pounds of salt
2: yeah at this point i mean everything even after the switchover i think a lot of people take things with a grain of salt
1: but it is a good thread in general to check out it's it's been pretty interesting there's thoughts on you know what his favorite products are and you know where he sees things going so if you want a kind that of ongoing cool. yeah. interview if you want to ask a question that's it he's been responsive I to. To my shock, I mean, there's a lot of questions in that thread, and he's been taking in, the time to that, do it. So. That's kind of interesting, too, because um, not to say
2: Sandy was completely unreachable beforehand, but I think this is, without a doubt, the the most reachable he has ever been. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is something in its own right. Okay, so up next, uh, Pelgrim Press's countdown is finally ended, and Cthulhu Apocalypse, the Doomsday Edition has been announced uh, which gathers basically the previously released apocalypse machine the dead white world and slaves of the mother and adds on eight new uh, short scenarios to that as well so very very cool and excited about that,
3: yep, that yeah yeah i really cool. hope i get a chance to play these at some stage because i've i've really yeah. enjoyed uh i've really enjoyed the other stuff that graham Walmsley's done um and mm-hmm. I, I believe he didn't write all of this book but um you know Listen, it's, it's based around the core of his stuff, and he's he's written some dark Cthulhu stuff over the years.
2: Yeah, and we all know Chad is a fiend for Mister Walmsley,
1: so indeed, and well, and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, who is the other author. So uh, it sounds awesome, and it is meant to be super dark, which is also right up our alley. Yeah, pretty cool.
0: Uh, let's see. Next up, Greg Stafford, IRC interview at RPG.net. So it looks like, uh, Greg Stafford, uh, participated in a, uh, Q and guess, right. On the, uh, IRC. And I think that has been archived. Yep, yeah, It looks like yep, if, we've uh, we got, got a link in the link show, in the notes, show notes and, uh, yeah, you can see and read along to, uh, to see the interview with, uh, Greg Stafford.
3: Yeah, I don't think there was anything too earth-shattering in it, but you know, it, it does. It, it's a nice counterpoint to Sandy's Q&A and, and gives you a bit more of an insight into what's going on in Chaosium at the moment. That's good. That's cool.
1: Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson.
2: So, uh, if you haven't guessed already, today we have uh, the wonderful, the amazing Scott Dorward on the show again. Welcome back, Scott.
3: Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.
2: And we're going to be talking about the Church Commission. Um, <laughs> no, we're not. Well, we're not really, not, not
3: really. <laughs> well we may cover other parsings. things. Yeah.
2: Because <laughs> we all know that the uh, CIA got up to some uh, questionable stuff there in the 1970s.
3: Well, uh, well the 19.
2: And, yes, and since in all the decades, decades before, and, before. In all, in all just, the times, actually. And just just barely started talking about it in the 70s. Uh, we just kind of started realizing it in the 70s, I think was part of the problem.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, we'll, we'll probably get onto this later, but that's one of the many things that attracted me to the 1970s as a setting. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, it see, seemed to be around the time that the can of worms got open and the worms started crawling out everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It was a couple of decades into the cobalt war in general and, um, things started leaking by that point, you know?
3: Yeah. Some people have become very cynical and, uh, distrusting of their own government on, on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> um, and, and probably with good reason. Yeah, absolutely.
1: As evidenced by findings of the, Uh, senate and house commissions
2: and and everything that happened at the end of the empire i mean let's be honest yes (laughs) (laughs) oh yes because there was some there was some dirty stuff that happened there too (laughs) oh god yes (laughs) Um, yes yeah so why don't you give us a rundown about why you're actually here scott because we didn't actually (laughs) intro that at all and it feels like we should (laughs) talk about that instead of just jumping straight into the church commission
3: yeah. Yes, yeah. It might give it a little bit of context. Yeah, a little bit. So... At the moment, Cubicle 7 is running a Kickstarter campaign uh, for the Cold War setting for World War Cthulhu. So the idea of this is that we're taking our existing World War Cthulhu line. Um, At the moment, everything we've published for that to date uh, has been set in the Second World War. But we're taking that and we're advancing it, you know, 25 to 35 years, to discover the scope of the 1970s and the Cold War. Um, And this... This is going to involve a new core book, uh, which will set up uh, character creation and all the uh, kind of ancillary information uh, about playing games in the Cold War, um, as well as a number of supporting books, which I'll, I'll go into in more detail in a moment. Uh, but, yeah, the, the the general idea is that, uh, you know, th- this then portrays a very different kind of conflict, a much more kind of shadowy, uh, espionage-based conflict, proxy wars, cat-and-mouse games between uh, Western and Eastern Bloc intelligence agencies, uh, the rise of uh, terrorist groups across the world, uh, and y- uses this as the backdrop for, um, you know, uh, mythos-based uh, scenarios. Uh, and yeah, you know, personally, as far as I'm concerned, the two go together so well. Yeah, you know, the 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 seventies uh, and um, the 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 sort of games of espionage that went on there have that feeling of of paranoia of people operating in the shadows of humanity being threatened by forces that we can't possibly comprehend. That. Yeah, are just classic mythos to begin with. Before you even start adding any entities.
0: <laughs> mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt there. Um, now, quick question: Are you because this is a fairly recent topic? You know what I mean? It's still fresh in a lot of people's minds, uh, especially of mm-hmm. our generation where we grew up through it, or uh, or right after the fallout of it. If you're young enough, um, are you are you using the mythos as a uh, and I don't take this the wrong way, but is the is the mythos portrayed as a reason why some of these governments acted the way they did?
3: <laughs> no, and this is very important to us. I, this is something that we did in the, uh, the the Second World War setting as well, which is you know part of the remit that went out to all the writers for that book and and for these books as well, is that we should at no point use the mythos as an excuse uh, for human evil. You know, people are perfectly capable of being monsters on their own without being manipulated by creatures from beyond space and time. And you know, we, we wanted to portray those aspects of human horror there and use those basically as opportunities for the mythos to, to interact or you know, uh, to take advantage of situations. Uh, but you know, never never to, to you know, have the mythos as a pretext for you know, real-world horrors.
0: Sure. Yeah. The, the mythos will say, wow, you have a nuclear device and you're predisposed to possibly pushing that button. Let's see how how much pushing do I need to do to get you to do that, you know? Yeah
3: yes exactly or you know where you've got you know massacres going on or wars or whatever you may have you know things coming through the cracks every now and then to take advantage of that um you know to, to feast or you know do whatever um you know has attracted them to to you know so much bloodshed but they're never going to be the driving causes of them
0: and right and i would like to uh revise your your uh, kickstarter you're not just running a kickstarter you're already running a successful kickstarter this is yes very well funded and uh, as we speak nine days to go uh, obviously less that than uh, than when the listeners are hearing it but uh this this looks beautiful oh yes. cool it thank you really put a lot yeah. of thought into it
3: Yes, yeah, I mean, we've been preparing this for a long time, uh, and yeah, I was absolutely delighted with the 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 way it all took off. I we we achieved full funding within the first three hours, uh, which was fantastic, and we were we were up to our first stretch goal within 24 hours. Uh, We. yeah, we're closing in, I think, now on the fourth stretch goal, uh, which is going to be uh, some handouts, uh, which will be sort of Cold War ephemera and documents and stuff like that, uh, that you can use as props in your games.
1: Compared to uh, Darkest Hour, how are you finding the, the progress? Is that faster than your first go?
3: <laughs> it's actually difficult for me to compare that because I didn't work on The Darkest Hour. I, I joined Cubicle Fair, 7 right, just, right. just after that was published and you know, I, I, I was nice. responsible for the supplements, but I didn't actually have a hand in The Darkest Hour core book itself. I mean, that said, yeah, you know, I've used The Darkest Hour as a template for this book in a lot of ways, um, at least for the structure of it, for the kinds of things we're covering, but obviously all updated to the 1970s. Um, so, if you're familiar with the the way the information is portrayed in The Darkest Hour, this is all going to be very familiar. Mm. Fantastic.
2: Um, So is it broken down by country then, similar to the way Darkest Hour was? So you had, you know, a breakdown of, um, um, in Darkest Hour at least, there's like a breakdown of special forces in the UK. And then then you had one, you know, a, a smaller segment broken down for, Um, the UK's allies, so like for the Americans, for the Canadians, for yada, yada, yada. And then you had, you know, the Axis powers split over on one side and then you had, you know, breakdowns of their special forces and stuff or intelligence services and stuff like that. Is it going to be similar to that in that format?
3: Yes, very very similar. I mean, you know, it's going to open with an overview of what, you know, the situation in the Cold War is at the time, and then a breakdown of who all the different players uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, the countries and their intelligence services are. Um, And then later on in the book, we've got uh, what's referred to as the intelligence theatres. So these are breakdowns, you know, of various countries that are key to the Cold War at the time, uh, whether, you know, uh, there are conflicts being fought, you know, be they proxy wars or just, you know, Small cat and mouse games, or you know, perhaps coups, uh, and you know how. I'm uh, the, 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 oh, sorry. the uh, The intelligence theatre section then provides information not only on these countries and the situation there, but also a few sample missions whereby you know, you know, the investigators may deal with you know, not only uh, political or espionage uh, objectives within that arena, but also mythos ones. Interesting.
2: And then how much info do you actually give on some of the real world events that took place during the 70s? So, I mean, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, thinking of some off the top of my head, you know, you had the CIA in, in East Timor and Chile. And uh. then you had, you know, the Troubles uh, in Northern Ireland yeah. and, and things of that nature. So, I mean, how much is
3: that? How much info are you actually going into there? um it, I mean, it's, it's a bit broken up so you know obviously you know like i said you know we've got the the stuff on the intelligence services to begin with where we've got the individual intelligence theaters like that i mean, obviously we're a bit limited by the fact that we're trying to put quite a lot into one book so it's going to be a relatively high level overview for each one you know between 500 to a thousand words um uh, plus you know a couple of the mythos uh, missions in there um what we're doing to you know try to Give us a bit more breathing room. There uh, is we've separated out um, a lot of the stuff that's particularly of American interest into a separate book uh, called Our American Cousins. Uh, so this you know gives uh, the Cold War um, from the perspective from an American perspective, uh, and and you know, where you're talking about you know for example some of those CIA operations in in East Timor in Chile in Australia, uh, that, you know that. That's the book where a lot of these are going to be covered in depth. Gotcha. So
0: <clears throat> I'm looking at the uh, thing here, and it looks like there's the World War Cthulhu, Cold War core book, Section 46 Operations Player's Guide, the, the American we Tell us about what's going to be included in here in, in the, uh, sure. and about the, uh, the campaign books that I see in here and scenario supplements. Just to kind of give us a rundown on everything that's in here.
3: Okay, so as I said, the core book covers the uh, the core 1970s setting. Uh, that's going to be primarily from a British perspective, but it's going to have options for you know, other international intelligence agencies as as player characters in there. There's the, you know, as I said, the our American cousins book, uh, has got um, you know, details specific details of the American intelligence agencies and their involvements, both uh, in domestic and international arenas. Um, <clears throat> And uh, there's in in both books. Uh, there's going to be you know a fairly extensive sandbox scenario uh, in the core book. Uh, there's going to be a couple of scenarios in the American book. Uh, then moving on from there, we've got the Section Forty Six Operations Manual. This is inspired very much by the uh, the SOE Handbook, which we published for the Darkest Hour setting. Uh, right. I, I- don't think the print version's quite out yet Uh, It's certainly out in pdf at the moment and the print version should be hitting the shelves very soon uh but this is sort of a i mean it it, it is a sort of player's handbook it covers um a few different things it covers um some 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 mechanics surrounding um you know how to carry out particular actions but more importantly uh it's it introduces a lot of um, well, in the case of the Section 46 Operations Manual, it outlines a lot of tradecraft practices uh, for for the players. So, I mean, this is aimed primarily at people who you know are, are interested in playing spies in the 1970s, but maybe won't necessarily you know know a lot of their stuff that their characters would know on how to carry things out, uh, and sort of gives you guidelines on you know everything from um, uh, from, from bucking to you know uh, t- Dead letter drops, uh, all the way through wet works uh, and infiltration, uh, as well as providing you know additional equipment and and a few a uh, few additional mechanical options. Oh, that sounds awesome! Uh, moving on from there, we have the campaign Yesterday's Men. Uh, so this revolves around um, a. a a british sis operation that started just after the second world war uh with a a stay behind group that uh was left in um what would become east germany uh basically as part of n's network so n For those who haven't played uh, The Darkest Hour, is this sort of shadowy spy master type character uh, who has been operating within British intelligence and the British military, but his primary objectives are dealing with the mythos. You know, what his actual motivations are, are questionable. And, you know, there are a few different options in the book. Uh, But... In um, in the case of Yesterday's Men, you know, N was a bit worried that the Eastern Bloc and in this case, you know, East Germany in particular would be a bit of a dead spot to his operations. So he you know he, he had this left behind group uh, or stay behind group left there. Now it's, you know, uh, 25, 30-odd years later, and, you know, after um, a lot of cutbacks to British intelligence and reshuffles and so on, these people have been all but forgotten there. Uh, They've... um, They've had you know twenty-five or thirty years of dealing with uh, the Stasi, of dealing with the KGB, of dealing with mythos cults and entities, uh, and yeah, you know, they're not quite the people they used to be. Uh, whether or not they can be trusted anymore, whether or not they're completely uh, subverted or corrupted, yeah, uh, you know, is is now a question for the player characters to determine and to try to work out just what kind of network of horrors they've got themselves involved in, uh, and and what needs to be done about them. Um, And, you know, this is as much as anything else a a pretext for getting into a lot of the... um a lot of the nastier uh, politics and and terrorist actions that was going on in Europe at the time you know Europe was an absolute mess in the 1970s I mean particularly you know Germany and Italy uh, with extremist groups uh, uh, cropping up all over the place Mm -hmm. uh, with ties to you know uh, uh, Palestinian extremist groups and uh, you know Eastern Bloc's intelligence agencies and and drug money coming in from all over the place and um, yeah, by, by the time you start looking into this I mean It's you, 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 you just can't help but be drawn in by, you know, the complexity and horror of the real world setting. Um, and then, you know, adding the kind of mythos elements on top of that, yeah, I think this is going to be a, um, a very kind of strange and rich campaign. Mm. And that sounds Uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, I have to admit,
1: I'm, I'm a huge fan already. I like, I like the, tone-wise that this sounds very much like a kind of hardcore approach to espionage in the 1970s because i think it seems like the 1970s has been the subject of some parody probably for good reason in the spy (laughs) genre you've got you know (laughs) it was the it was the roger moore era of bond which is the silliest you know slapstick (laughs) version of bond uh
3: yeah but you still had but on the other hand
1: yeah, on the, oh, I was gonna. I'm sorry. On the other hand, you
2: had you know you had Len Dayton and um, Frederick Forsyth and John Le Carre did his best work in the 70s. Mm-hmm, um,
3: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Le Carre is yeah you know, is writ large all over this setting, and uh, yeah, the the other influence that yeah I, I keep going back to uh, for this is I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, a, a British TV show from the 1970s called The Sandbaggers. The sandbaggers.
2: <laughs> I love yeah. that show. It's
3: fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I, the sandbaggers is actually you know quite an interesting influence for this because it was designed in a lot of ways to get around some of the same problems that we've got um, with um, you know, setting up uh, player character groups and so on in this. In that you, they're by the time, you know, the late 70s came around, there weren't really too many special operations groups in action, you know, either in the UK or the US. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of it had been you know, cut back. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the sandbag has basically fictionalized, you know, a, a lot of um, British intelligence covert actions and you know, made them, I mean, not necessarily more action-packed, but certainly more kind of exciting and narratively driven than the real world Mm. stuff might have been at the same time while making it still feel absolutely real and mired in bureaucracy and human betrayals and full of kind of burnt out people. Um, And you know, that, that is hugely inspirational for the way that, that we're handling things.
2: Yeah. And one thing to mention about sandbaggers that, that always, well, it took me by surprise when I first started watching it, right? So you're watching a 1970s spy drama uh, that was basically filmed in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, yeah, but it was the the, f- the thing about it is that you've got Burnside, who's the head of the Sandbaggers, and then he has at most like two agents, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It, it's he's maybe three if he's lucky, but usually one of them's dead. You know what I mean. So you've got <laughs> mm-hmm. you've got two agents that he uses, and that's that's the the extent in the Sandbaggers of the british special force uh intelligence service europe yes. worldwide you know what i mean and these 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 guys will fly all over the dang place and but they're um, like you said they're they 're mired in bureaucracy at the same time um, so a lot of things you have to do on the on the on the down low so to speak uh, it 's a very interesting take on um, British intelligence in general of that era.
3: Yeah, I, and I mean that's that's the thing as well that you know, a lot of people probably you know don't realise is that the secret intelligence service or, or MI6 um, is actually quite a small organisation. They, not not that many people work for them, um, and I mean yeah that's still true to this day. But you know even in the 1970s, you know, it, it wasn't you know the same kind of big outfit that you know say the CIA was.
1: Although it, it, it led in the beginning, uh, was had much more of a network than the CIA when it, when it first started. And the uh, CIA becomes, kind of, just sort of asks the, asks the Brits, wherever they're based, <laughs> to, to get up to speed uh, in the
3: very beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's primarily because you know, SIS predated the CIA. I mean, it started up um, around uh, the First World War, uh, whereas you know, the CIA was formed uh, just after the end of the Second uh, so we had a bit of a head start, <laughs> right? And there was a, quite a debate about whether it was a necessary
1: uh, agency for for a while, and its beginning anyway. Oh yes, and, well, and, and I, the, I don't, th- 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 I don't th- th- think that ever went away.
2: <laughs> yeah, we threw yeah, a, 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 uh, We threw a lot of money at the CIA as well, whether we wanted to or not. Um, whereas MI6 was very much kind of like the dirty stepchild over off the corner. You know what I mean? So they had they had well, funding cuts after funding cuts. Uh, where the cia was basically given a blank check
3: yeah i mean well that's actually one of the things that drew me to the 1970s uh we, you know we we uh, touched upon the uh, the Church Commission um, a while back, uh, which, you know, basically declawed and, and defunded the CIA to a large extent because of a lot of their misdeeds. But around the same time, similar things were happening in the UK. Um, uh, there was a, a new government that came to power in the mid-70s, uh, a, a Labour government, uh, which had a lot less faith in the security services than the, uh, the previous Conservative government had. Uh, and as a result, you know, they were actively you know, defunding and um, uh, trying to cut back on the operations of SIS. Um, so, I, I, I was kind of, I was very attracted to this idea of um, working within an intelligence service in crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know, at the same time as fighting. Uh, the mythos at the same time as you know fighting um, against international terrorism against agents of the Eastern Bloc you're also having to you know to some extent fight your own political masters for your own survival um, and that just adds another layer to you know sort of the paranoia and desperation of the era mm-hmm.
1: right and and then splits within the agencies themselves on on what's appropriate to do and what's not
3: exactly yeah yeah yes and every everyone fighting for funding and prestige and looking for a chance to screw each other over yeah it's it's a very paranoid time and a lot of a
2: lot of things were actually done without any official sanction on on every side <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. where the, the security oh, yeah. services basically realized they were not going to be able to get what they needed to get and you know official government sanction to perform whatever the hell they were going to do and so they would just do it Um, they would, they would mire it in bureaucracy on their own end so that they could hide it as best as possible. But it, 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 it's at this period where a lot of those things start coming out, thus the church commission and things of that nature. Um, especially I think at the end of, I guess kind of the beginning, uh, of, um, Elizabeth's reign there in, in the UK, you know, at the end of the Georgian period. And then you had, uh, Elizabeth take, and then you had, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the government shifts not long after that. Isn't that about when it was the conservative government up until then and they pretty much could do whatever they want? Um, and then it was in the 60s where they shifted back to labor, right?
3: Um, I 60s. there were ebbs there, there were and flows all around the the labor government that I was talking about in particular you know uh, defunding the intelligence services um I I could I could embarrass myself quite badly here by getting it wrong but I'm pretty sure they came to power in 74 mm. yeah that, that was and that was when that was when Harold Wilson became pm right gotcha
1: do you have a, a sense of how connected the kind of implosion of the CIA and the coming out of of the family jewels and all of that had an effect on how intelligence, uh, the the SIS, was seen in the UK? And I mean, did they lose because
3: CIA started to lose? Or was it just happenstance and (sighs) culture? I, I think it was a combination of a variety of factors. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I mean certainly, you know, the the um, the extremes of some of the CIA actions. You know, particularly seeing as SIS had been involved with some of them. Yeah, you know, I mean, like you know, both SIS and the CIA were um, involved with overthrowing the government in Iran in, 19, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that was primarily a British operation, and the CIA helped out. Mm-hmm. Um, But, um, yeah, it's a combination of of that, um, you know, ideological differences within the government. You know, simply the fact there wasn't the money uh, to back them. You know, there were huge cutbacks all around. Um, Plus – the, the the other factor that we had in the the UK and you know, admittedly this mostly happened in the 1960s was the kind of growing revelations about the Cambridge Five and Kim Philby uh, and the fact that you know the intelligence services were somewhat perceived to be riddled with Soviet moles. Um, right, yeah, you know, obviously the CIA had its fair share of those as well, but, you know, those those didn't come out until a bit later. Uh, plus, you know, there was the fact that, you know, a lot of the damage that was done to the CIA was actually done by Kim Philby. Right. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was, you know, it just didn't help the overall feeling of paranoia about the intelligence services. You know, could, could you really trust them? Who were they really working for? Right, and there was a counterculture
1: movement in the same way there was in the U.S., um, questioning authority in general, and certainly secret operations by your own government.
3: Oh yes, yeah, and you know, I mean, that's particularly once we get to the American book, there's there's definitely going to be you know aspects of that in the domestic side of things because you know one of the agencies we're covering there is the FBI, um, who. You know, we're talking about the tail end of the J. Edgar Hoover period there, uh, which was perhaps not the FBI's proudest hour.
2: Um, and um, that's, that's putting it mildly, I have to admit. That's, uh. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, and, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly, you know, it, I mean, there, there were, you know… Perhaps you know some real menaces uh, that they had to deal with, um, you know, like uh, the, the Weather Underground. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you know, they, they did perhaps get a bit carried away.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Phoenix Phoenix pro- project. I'm looking at you. Oh
0: yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I yeah. wanted to ask. No, oh, go sorry, ahead. No, I'm
3: sorry.
1: <laughs> well,
0: I wanted to, <laughs> to ask about the. Uh the the campaign again specifically um who's involved and in, you know, like who are the writers uh, any you know what kind of uh, what kind of art and everything have y'all been getting but you can tell us more about the uh, the actual product that's
3: coming out too uh, i at the moment with both the campaign book and the scenario book which i, I didn't quite get around to talking about uh it's a bit early to talk about that yet because um you know the uh the, both books are quite affected by stretch goals in the campaign. So, um, you know, at the moment until the campaign's over, the, the Kickstarter campaign's over, we don't necessarily know how many uh, chapters are going to be in each book. Um, so, you know, as far as actually pinning down the final writing roster on those that's concerned, you know, giving you you know a categorical list of who's involved, you know, I, I'm, I'm not actually in a position to do that yet. All right. All right. What, what about the full book, though, the main book? oh yeah um yeah the the full book we've uh we've definitely got the roster for that uh uh we've got a fair number of writers on it um i mean it's certainly you know i'm working on it uh um Paul Frick is doing the character creation section of it. Uh, Matt Sanderson is doing the scenario. Uh, we've got a lot of people working on the intelligence theaters and the um, uh, the, 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 the mythos elements in there, uh, including uh, Andrew Kenrick, uh, Nick Robinson from cubicle Seven Ken Spencer, uh, who did Rocket Age, uh, Jason Durrell, uh and um, yeah, I, I've got uh, Martin Doherty, who uh, is working heavily on both this and, you know, particularly on the Section 46 operations manual. Uh, if you don't recognize his name, uh, Martin's one of the, the, the sort of unsung heroes of World War Cthulhu, and he's worked on, you know, most of the books that have come out so far. And he wrote the vast majority of the SOE operations, uh, sorry, the SOE handbook, for example um he's he, he writes books on military history uh for a living mm-hmm. um and uh, so he knows the subject matter inside out so you know uh when it comes to you know coming up with um authoritative material about tactics and tradecraft and so on yeah i i, I just tend to pass it all over to martin
2: <laughs> awesome oh, excellent that's a fantastic resource to have on board um just uh, are you with the campaign are you and I'm going to preface <laughs> this just slightly. Are, are you worried at all about Fallout covering things like the Troubles?
3: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be an idiot not to. Um, I, you know, when it comes to the Troubles in particular, because, you know, yeah. obviously I live in the UK and it's very fresh in people's memories here. Yeah, you know, I'm aware that it's got to be handled incredibly delicately. And I, to be honest, I'm, I'm still trying to kind of work out the best approach to that at the moment because it, it's one of these topics where it's it's difficult to come up with an explanation of events that isn't inherently um, political, that isn't inherently partisan to some extent. Uh, and... Yeah, you know, trying to present it objectively is, yeah, is a minefield.
1: Yeah, yeah, it seems a challenge all around. That that being so fresh and so close makes it worse. But even you know, there well, there are sensitivities about Vietnam and and all kinds of uh, issues oh, popping God. out of this yes. that are fresh.
3: You know. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, we're covering parts of the Middle East in this as well. I mean, you start getting around to Israel and Palestine, and yeah, it's got exactly the same problems.
2: Well, this is when you have the Arab explosion, so to speak, you know, in, yeah. uh, whenever the the oil boom really hits in the Middle East, so… Well,
3: and also the fact that, you know, the, the, the Palestinian extremist groups at the time were very, very heavily involved with what was going on in Europe. Um, you look at uh, extremist groups like, um, you know, the Red Army Faction, Bad Meinhof in Germany. Uh, they, they got all their training from the PFLP uh, and, you know, when their leaders were arrested, it was the PFLP who ended up hijacking uh, an aircraft uh, to try to uh, get them released. So you know, you you, you can't you, you can't pretend you know the, these issues didn't exist. You can't kind of not cover them. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to make sure that we do so in as kind of sensitive and unbiased a way as possible.
2: And you're not um, just so that uh, the listeners know uh, you're not blaming either side.
1: On the mythos, correct? No. In oh, any no, of no, any no. Situations. no.
3: No, not in the slightest.
1: The so part of it is actually exploring human horrors. I mean, as ho- human horrors, as opposed to uh, displaced blame.
3: Exactly. Sure? I'm, you know, I've... I've sort of half joked uh, when talking to various writers about this project over the last few months that you know that ad- adding the mythos to a lot of this stuff is almost redundant yeah um, <laughs> that you know, you've, got all, you've got all the classic call of Cthulhu themes in there already uh, you've got the paranoia, you've got the horror and so on you know what can the mythos add that will make this any darker right?
2: Well, let's ask worse that. What, than, what does the mythos add that makes this any darker? I mean, how how are yeah. you actually meshing in the mythos into a <laughs> setting that's already completely balls crazy?
3: Yeah, and and that that is that's the interesting part, and I yeah you know, I, I see it as being you know complementary in a lot of ways that you know because the themes mesh in so well uh, that you know what, what what this this setting does that you know perhaps the darkest hour didn't do is add a deg- you know a degree of ambiguity to the whole thing that you know for example you know if you were on a mission in the darkest hour uh, to go behind enemy lines in France and and you know by the way you know there's a cult there that's you know uh, attempting to you know do something nasty with five vampires uh, you were fairly certain that the cult would be one thing and that you know everyone else would. be... Be quite, you know, quite separate and identifiable. With uh, with this, because you're dealing with um, you're dealing with people who live in the shadows anyway, with you know, terrorists and spies, that you know, in a lot of cases, they're, you know, perhaps going to move in the same circles as cultists, that, you know, they're, they're certainly going to, you know, move under the radar in the same way, um, that they're, you know, going to seek out funding in strange ways. Uh, and, you know, you, you may find that you you start making assumptions that a lead you're following is going to be you know take you you know through to that KGB informer that you were you, know, you you were trying to track down and find out that you know it's it's actually somehow related to a priest of Shognafon. Mm. or in the same um,
2: in the same sense could you follow in leads like this assume that you're going to be you know tracking down a cultist and then determine that you're actually tracking down a, a, a an aspect of your own government or
3: or, a, or an a, allied absolutely. government absolutely and and you know because of the ways that you know the governments and intelligence services operate at the same time you know you may be you know, even end up with situations where you um, you've got your own government who's backing you know two different opposing factions in you know in the situation um, yeah, I, I, I've been speaking to a, an academic friend of mine uh, about this recently uh, who yeah, – I, I need to do more research on this because this sounds fascinating uh, – who was talking about um, extremist groups in Italy uh, during the 1970s and the fact that there were both left-wing extremist and right-wing extremist groups uh, that were being funded and trained by the CIA. Um, and, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the two groups were largely, you know, at war with each other. But the CIA um, were backing the right wing extremists because, you know, they were combating communism. And they were backing the left wing extremists because they made the, you know, the more socialist elements in the government look bad. Uh, so, you know, as far as the CIA was concerned, it was win win.
1: <laughs> fantastic. You can't lose if you bet on both sides. Yeah, yeah right.
3: Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, yeah, I mean, but, but you, know, you start tucking a few strands, you may uncover things like that, for example. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, this, this, again, is one of the things that attract me, this kind of murkiness, the fact that you know, you're never quite sure what you've stepped in.
1: Mm. It sounds like it's sort of a great toolbox for keepers because they can decide whether they want to take their band players to, to take the campaign in a direction of sort of, uh, just exploring intelligence in the 70s, or in putting that up front, or making it more of a mythos—you um, know—a mythos first kind of campaign.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the the material that we're publishing in the campaign uh, on you know, the call book and the um, uh, in the scenario book is is going to balance those two aspects. So, you know, the, the, there aren't going to be any scenarios in there that are just espionage or just mythos. They're all going to be that you know sort of unwholesome cocktail of the two. And the mythos
1: part of this is—is is it all coming out of? Uh, it's an international agency that is kind of a conglomerate i mean can you can, as a, a player in the american theaters playing american agents are you going to be uh taking instructions from n uh, or yeah you know, how, do, right. how does that work structurally yeah now
3: the, the, this is uh yeah this is an interesting part of things so um you know with the history that we've built up um it, it, We've had, you know, in the darkest hour, uh, Network N was very much incorporated into the Special Operations Executive. Now, the Special Operations Executive, though it was part of the British uh, military, was at the same time a very, very international operation. It had uh, agents drawn in from all over Europe. Uh, More than that, it had, you know, bases in Southeast Asia. It had... um, uh, it had training camps in Canada, uh, worked with Canadian intelligence there. And then at the, uh, the start of the, uh, the Second World War, you know, before uh, America got involved, uh, elements within the American government realized that, you know, they were going to have to gear up for this. Um, so, you know, they, they couldn't officially train their agents um, you know, on, on American soil. Uh, so they sent them off to, uh, to Canada to train with SOE there, Camp X in Ontario. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were trained there by members of the SOE, largely British agents. Um, and, you know, the, the Americans who were trained there would later go on to form the OSS and, and you know, ultimately the CIA. Um, so... You know, if, if you accept the idea that network n was you know had its strands all through the SOE and you know was perhaps you know dealing with these people all across the world all across Europe and and you know with the formation of the CIA then you've got these these people who are carrying N secrets around you know who you know this is 25 30 years later are still you know there within these different intelligence organizations some of them in in, in positions of power Um no, yeah, you know, N at this stage has been sidelined. Yeah, you know, well, he's been promoted upstairs. He's been given a peerage and told to keep quiet. Um, so, um, you know, there, there, there is no official um, uh, network N anymore. But at the same time, there are you know, people in the, the various intelligence services who are sort of, you know, is in in. Uh, Uh, in communication with each other you know perhaps sharing intelligence under the radar um, and that you know there there are little pockets of a network end still there Um, of course you know they they aren't necessarily going to be able to get official backing for the things they're doing because you know who the hell believes in the mythos anyway so they they put it you know in the perhaps awkward position of a time when people are already paranoid about the intelligence services, when people are looking out for Russian moles, particularly, you know, in the wake of Philby and his ilk, uh, that, you know, they, they're, they're perhaps going to start having to act a little bit like moles themselves uh, at a time when, you know, that, that's a very, very dangerous thing to be doing. Hmm.
1: Oh, I was I was going to ask about the, the somewhat psychedelic uh, references that you have here with the uh, H or agent H or whatever H is.
3: Right. So th- this is another bit of uh, background that we've developed actually for the First World War setting, uh, which you know we- we're now reincorporating all through the line. Uh, so. With the First World War setting, which is still in development, um, there's the idea that N himself was recruited by someone. So we've got this this other shadowy figure who just goes by the name of H. Um, She is, um, at this stage... She doesn't necessarily exist anymore. Uh, she certainly doesn't have. Um, she certainly doesn't have a physical presence anymore. She's probably long dead. At the same time, she still exists in dreams, um, and she has her own agenda. That's, she, that's a fantastic.
2: Isn't sorry, that great? That's awesome. By the way, <laughs> just saying that's great. Go ahead. All
3: right. So, so she has these old ties within with his network and so on, but. Um, um you know she and n have, have so, they they have very differing views on how um, you know humanity should interface with the mythos and particularly with the dreamlands um, and this has sort of led to, you know, almost a, another Cold War within the mythos uh, fighting side of things, um, uh, with, with N and H sort of playing games with each other's followers, uh, with H, you know, perhaps trying to get into people's dreams and, and you know, plant ideas there and subvert them. Uh, and, yeah, it, 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 it's it's... It adds to that whole paranoia sometimes of, you know, not only who are the people you're dealing with working for, but sometimes who are you working for and are you really sure? And, you know, is that idea about what you should do next in your head really yours or was it just something you dreamt last night? <laughs>
2: it's fantastic. <laughs> that's that's a really cool twist on that, by the way. I really I really dig that. Oh, cool.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Under- we, we, we could of- have… Yes, we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. And and yeah, I mean that that, yeah. that that does give us a chance to bring in perhaps, you know, some stranger influences. Uh I, I know, you know, when I was discussing that with Matt Sanderson, his eyes lit up and I think he immediately started thinking of riffs on the prisoner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Can we can we just have a prisoner adventure campaign? I'm just saying. because <laughs> mm-hmm. That would just be
1: fantastic.
3: <laughs>
1: and pretty much any Any sort of psychotropic influence to me that that suggests this dreamlands influence. So you could, you know, you've got uh, experimentations in music and mind altering substances and, you know, all this going on while you have this force in the dreamlands uh, whispering
3: (laughs) instructions. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of what people think of as being the 1960s, you know, in terms of the hippie movement and so on, was actually the early 70s. So, right. you know, you've you've definitely got a lot of that stuff kicking around. Uh, plus, at the same time, you know, once we get into the American arena, you've got, you know, things like Project Stargate, uh, the remote mm-hmm. viewing program, you've got <laughs> MK MKUltra. Um, you know, if, if you're looking at these, it's
2: strewn with people's heads. Yeah. We've got a lot of ridiculous things like that that we got around to
1: at that period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Staring at ghosts,
2: yeah. etc. Uh, so let's move away from uh, World War Cthulhu and let's talk about you. You touched on it there already the uh, the World War One setting for um, World War Cthulhu. Um, how far into development is it? Is it still in writing? Well, that, what, what phase are we you, at there?
3: That, that's still in development. That's a way off at the moment. So yeah, you know, I, I, our general plan at the moment is to you know is to concentrate on um, you know the the Cold War stuff immediately and then move on to you know i mean we, we, we're, we're keeping each line alive so you know for example we're still we've got some some more uh, world war ii stuff in development at the moment which should come out over the uh, the next year um but yeah it, 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 we're expanding the uh, the line into other areas uh, so um Unless anything changes. I mean, yeah, I, I can't I can't swear to this, but, yeah, certainly at the moment, the plan is that the next one we do will be the World War One book.
2: OK, and then following that will be World War Three. Is that correct? That that, that,
3: that that is the plan at the moment. Yes. OK,
2: and then World War Three. Can you just give us a, a brief because obviously we know what World War One is, but um, a brief rundown of what <laughs> World War Three would be?
3: I, I, I'm afraid, Murth, that's classified at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I
2: hit up. I was wondering if I'd hit upon something you
0: couldn't talk about.
3: Um, <laughs> no, no. The, the sodium pentothal you put in my coffee hasn't kicked in yet. That sucks.
0: Until it comes out, until it comes out, I'm just imagining it as Cthulhu Apocalypse. So there
2: you go. I don't know about that. I think I, it I, will be more, uh, more, more like World War Cthulhu. It seems like a Cthulhu apocalypse right now has been a uh, a, a hotbed.
0: It's kind of like it'll new be thing. An, it'll be an apocalypse of 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 mankind making. I mean, we're just going to melt the rim of the Earth. Melt the rim <laughs> of the Earth. How does that work? I'm gonna, well, that's I'm taking that from from Planet of the Apes.
1: Yeah, I just. I, <laughs> and we actually discovered the world is flat and has right. a rim <laughs> and has a, that's has a lip mind it, blown
2: yeah Them <laughs> guys are worried about falling off the edge of the world it could never happen there's a rim around it that's on fire op- yeah that's your yeah if
3: someone flips the earth upside down and everyone falls off
2: well we what happened is we just slid <laughs> off the turtle's back i mean it's I turtles know. all the way down man man i'm telling <laughs>
1: I also think I I heard, uh, I heard, I think, on the Good Friends bit that you did on this, that there there might be some filling in of gaps, uh, 60s, 50s, for Cold War eventually.
3: Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something, again, we're talking about at the moment. It's not in active development. So this is Mm. just purely notion. but yeah obviously the cold war is a lot more than just the 1970s so one thing that you know if if the line is as successful as i hope and you know there's the opportunity to do so uh what i'd like is yes to expand the cold war into you know other decades uh and and ultimately end up covering the whole scope of from the uh, I, uh, from the late 40s through to the 80s i would
2: love to see a 60s uh, Cold War setting, just because I yep. want to play the Ipgris file. Um, oh yes,
0: <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, oh, and I yeah. thought you were going to say uh, Austin Powers.
2: All right. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Come on, no,
0: no. I can see you doing
2: that. I can't. I can't see me playing Austin Powers. I can see me playing the Ipcriss file though. Just saying, or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I can do that now with uh, Cold War. So I'm. I'm good. I'm doing good here, man. <laughs> Uh since you breached uh good friends, let's 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 chat a little bit about good friends.
3: Okay. what well, what can I tell you?
2: Um well first <laughs> off, uh you guys are awesome. Uh oh thank you. I- <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> I made I made Scott blush. <laughs> Um, no, we just wanted to see what you have in the works for the future. Um, you know, you right. guys are doing a much a much quicker release time than than you had up until about I guess about <laughs> five or six months ago when you were. Yeah, kind of yeah. Like, it went from being the the sometimes occasional podcast to the mostly weekly podcast to the flat out weekly podcast. <laughs> it's like
3: <laughs> is, so so yeah. It's great. I well. What happened was, um, yeah, it was about a year ago, I think, or a little over a year ago, uh, we had a bit of a rough patch when um, it was a combination of summer holidays and then uh, I think later in the year, you know, a couple of us uh, getting sick. I mean, you know, nothing serious, but it was just, you know, like uh, lingering colds that just made it difficult to record. Um, and we... Yeah, you know, earlier in the year we'd started out with a buffer of a few episodes that Paul could edit and get out, uh, but we burnt through that buffer quick, pretty quickly. So you know we were we, we were uh, releasing by the seat of our pants, uh, mm-hmm. and you know Probably it didn't really. take much of the delays uh, to knock us out. So you know, we've um, what happened? W- it was a couple of things. I um, we have got this this kind of Patreon thing going at the moment where um, uh, you know people very kindly chip in a, a bit of money and that you know covers up our, our hosting costs and equipment costs and uh, and the like and um, we put our initial sort of uh, reward goal or whatever they call them Patreon uh, as being that if we hit $50 an episode then we'd we'd actually sort of pull our fingers out and get organized enough to do a regular release schedule um, uh, and that happened. That happened about uh, five months ago, I think. Um, and, you know, since then, we we kind of built up a buffer of episodes again. We made sure we wouldn't get ourselves in that position. Uh, we've actually started doing unprecedented stuff, like we've planned out the topics for the next year's worth of episodes. Uh, well, I think
0: um, I'm sitting down. Wait, for oh, that. Wait,
2: hang on. That's right. Repeat
3: that just slowly for us, please. Yeah. We did a bit of analysis of our download figures and looked at the kinds of things that people actually, you know the episodes that people really downloaded and listened to uh and and we also did uh some polls um and you know it, it found out that you know for example people were um less interested in us talking about conventions um so you know so, <laughs> i remember so that we- poll i i voted <laughs> Uh so so yeah we we've you know pretty much you know sort of cut that out for example and you know they it was a bit ambivalent on interviews which I probably shouldn't say while you're interviewing me um and uh, <laughs> uh, uh so, don't so, worry. so we'll so, just
0: uh, cut this bit out we we
2: un- unlike <laughs> you we didn't we didn't bother with the metrics there we
0: <laughs> we don't we don't do
1: science <laughs> what, math
0: oh uh, look so, at that. So, so. scott dorward doesn't like our format look oh we lost this episode yeah. what a shame! <laughs> yeah. we
2: just wasted an hour and a half two hours of your oh, time well.
3: Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, uh, <laughs> oh, oh oh shut up
2: now <laughs> no, <laughs> no 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 keep talking <laughs> no. keep talking um so <laughs> that's all we got going man <laughs>
3: Uh, so so we I mean we we looked at all this stuff and we you know we we decided that we we do fewer interviews but I mean w- what we do was we kind of incorporate them more into you know standard episode topics rather than have special interview episodes and uh that we'd cut out all the convention stuff and we worked out you know w- what topics people really wanted to hear and put out a, a sort of structure for um uh, for those broad topics, so that was you know Call of Cthulhu, you know other horror role playing games, horror films, and horror stories. And so um, yeah, you know, we, we've we've kept with the core of core of uh, Call of Cthulhu. That's what the majority of our episodes are, and then we intersperse uh, at regular intervals now uh, what the other you know the other topics are. And so once we got that structure in place, we just went through and kind of filled in some gaps as to uh, what kinds of things we wanted to talk about. And yeah, you know before we knew it, we had about a year's worth of episodes planned wow that's great that's fantastic
0: I love the recent episodes where you're discussing books or you're discussing movies and then you bring it back around and the application to the role-playing game so
3: Oh, thanks. Yeah, that, that that was always very important to us because, you know, particularly where we're discussing Lovecraft stories, I mean, you know, we're all big fans of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Um, yeah, I, I, and, you know, uh, um, the, the, the gents who do that are you know, just so good at talking about Lovecraft stories and analysing them and talking about what makes them work and cool elements of them, that, you know, any attempt on our part just to do that would be redundant. We, you know, we'll never be as good, at them, you know, good, good as them at, at doing that. But, you know, by, by um, you know, rem- reminding ourselves that we're a gaming podcast and, and looking at kind of strip mining these stories for gaming ideas, I, that, that made it feel like a useful thing we could do.
2: I I would like to make a request if at all possible then. Mm, sure. Um I, I just got in a book. I I have a tendency to uh to collect uh folio society hardbacks and oh, yeah. know, familiar with folio society? Oh yes um, yeah. And I just got in uh Daphne du uh Don't Look Now and other stories. You know oh, has, wow. yeah. Don't Look Now and The Birds and some other these other classic horror yeah. stories that Hitchcock and some other directors in the sixties and fifties made films of yeah. i oh, think yeah. don't look now is a story you should cover because it is a just ah. straight up uh terrifying story
3: um yeah it, I, Daphne I, I, DeMarie, seen,
2: yeah it's very good
3: I, i've seen nick grog's film of it but i've never actually read the original story um yeah okay i i, I shall add that to the list um the only, cav- <laughs> the only caveat i'd add
2: it'll be next is- year <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, there's that, and we we take up a shorter story, so I don't know how long. Don't look now. Oh, it's is. not that um,
2: I don't know how long it is. I have to go back and look, but
3: okay, uh, yeah, because yeah, uh, you know, Matt doesn't find as much time for reading as um, you know as Paul and I do because you know he has a day job. Um, so yeah, we we tend to, for Matt's sake, try to stick to shorter stuff, so he actually has time to read. Them. <laughs>
2: see, it is um, 53 pages in this book, which is okay not too long considering the margins I'm looking at in this hardback.
3: Yeah, it's prob- probably so, under 20,000 words then.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say.
3: So that'll be shorter than The Shadow Out of Time at least.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, I would say so.
3: Okay, yeah, then I shall sure suggest that to the others.
1: <laughs> awesome. A little happy. Well, I, I have to say I've been really impressed with the sort of gussying up that's been done Paul's done some really great sound elements that I enjoy the bumpers and whatnot um I really like that format of using a little sound a little tiny half second bit of sound for yeah. between cuts so it's sort mm-hmm. of this is you it's a little signal that says this is incongruous <laughs> you know right um <laughs> But, uh, yes. yeah, it's just a, a really tight show now. I mean, I, I would encourage anyone who's not familiar to go into the back catalog they're all great episodes. But, yeah, it's very uh, – sounds very good lately.
3: Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, the turning point for us was probably around the time that we stopped recording in Paul's shed. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I mean, as, much as, as much as we Ooh. all love the shed. I miss that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the the sound quality that we can get now, yeah, you know, uh, in in Paul's office as opposed to the shed is significantly better. So <laughs> mm-hmm. we don't, we we don't have that strange echoing sound anymore. That's yes, hilarious. or the, or the
1: sound of uh, not all Chattering of you around teeth the mic is all freezing. <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> oh yes. Sometimes I
2: swear you could hear the mud being slung in the background from the clay wheel, but anyway, that's a joke. Um, anything else that you want to talk about, Scott? Anything we missed that you thought we should
3: cover? Yeah, are um, there any other bullet points on World War Cthulhu? Oh, so the one thing that we didn't quite get around to, um, we were rattling through the books, and and I, I think we got sidetracked talking about the campaign before I mentioned the scenario book. Um mm so so just to, just to go back and cover that uh yeah the, the last the last book that's that's being back sorry the last book that's been funded by the kickstarter campaign uh is called covert actions and it's a collection of scenarios unlike yesterday's men they're all standalone scenarios um and you yeah, know they, they they'll take place all over the world and again yeah. Uh, like uh, yesterday's men, I can't really give too many details of that yet because, um, you know, the scope of it is going to be affected somewhat by uh, Kickstarter stretch goals. Do you have um, um, do you
2: have riders on board already for some of them, at least?
3: Uh, I, I've, I've got a whole bunch of pictures at the moment and outlines, but uh, until I know how many of them I can accept, I don't necessarily want to say.
2: Right. Fair enough. I, I have to admit, I can't wait. To be able to play Burnside, um, <laughs> and yes. if, if you have no idea, if you've never seen the Sandbaggers, then you really, you you really should go and watch the Sandbaggers. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. television show.
1: Um, yeah, oh, it's he's, quintessentially
2: seventies British TV show or eighties British TV show. It's it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like uh, I like in that show how the sort of uh, low BBC budget. Uh, allows for just a lot of great script. And so you have all these conversations in offices uh, that are sort of uh, filled with double meanings and wry comments and sarcasm. And it's very, very amusing stuff.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and all the characters are, you know, richly drawn and complex. And, you know, I mean, there's a couple of them that, you know, the first time you encounter them do look like, you know, almost stereotypes. And then you, you start seeing that even they've got depths. And, yeah, it's just a beautifully written series. It really is. Yeah, yeah it's just just unfortunate that it, it, it kind of got cut off in its prime. I don't know if you know the story behind it, but uh, you- it was written. It was written by – or largely written and created by a guy called Ian McIntosh, um, who'd done some TV writing before, but uh, he actually worked, uh, if I remember correctly, for Naval Intelligence, Um, and – he, uh, he he certainly had to have his scripts for the sandbaggers vetted by the security oh services, uh, you know, in case he gave away any operational details or stuff he didn't. And there was at least one sandbagger script that ended up being, you know, uh, nixed because of that. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, he and the, the series stopped after uh, series three uh, because uh, he disappeared. Uh, he, he, he was on a he was on a mission for naval intelligence uh and apparently the plane he was on disappeared and you know he was never seen again wow Shut uh, the up. The, the, the,
2: that is yeah. fantastic
3: well, yeah, a a scenario right
2: there yeah no right
3: mm. <laughs> yeah yeah there we go yeah if we ever do the 1980s book that's the first scenario you know find out what happened to ian McIntosh. <laughs> <laughs> good
0: grief that is awesome. I, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I think it's called Spooks in uh, in the UK, oh, yes. but it's MI five here in the states. And uh, even though that's modern, you know, you could still take that type of structure and, and mine those type of uh, uh, stories that they tell and, and reskin them for the seventies. I would hope.
3: Absolutely. Oh, and and the other recommendation, you know, if we're talking about television that I'd make, uh, going back to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, have you ever seen Callan?
2: Yes. No. Yes. That is a great show, by the way. (laughs) There's not enough of those either, unfortunately.
3: No, it's it's one where um, I think it was a BBC series, but it was yeah you know, one like you know early Doctor Who where you know a number of the early episodes got wiped because they just reused the videotape. I think it, was um, a- it was ITV, I believe, is what it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, there were commercial breaks, weren't there? Anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, most of it still exists. I mean, there's a few of the uh, the, the first series that's missing, but I mean, th- there's still a fair chunk of them left. Um, but it's it's a fantastic series starring Edward Woodward as uh, a member of the security services. Um, now, you know, for the, uh, for the it, Americans it, out
2: there, okay, uh, Callan is kind of like the precursor to the Equalizer. Right. It's because it's the same same yeah. Edward Woodward. And then the Equalizer was in the 80s after he's kind of disappeared from SOE or the security services in the UK. And he shows up in in the US for some reason or other.
3: Um, but it, it's yeah. Yeah. You, you could almost see that as being a continuation of Callan. I mean, they, they, they're quite different characters, though, because yeah, they are, right, it's not. You know, it, it,
2: but it could be, you know, just to make it for an yeah. American television audience that <laughs> that's how you could tie it in to make these people watch it.
3: <laughs> yeah you know, i mean the main difference i think between i, I can't remember the name of the protagonist and the equalizer but the main difference between him and david callan is the the self-loathing you know callan is uh a, a wet works operative uh for the security services you know he's he's uh his main job is basically to identify security threat Oh, you know when he has a, a security threat to the uk identified to him that you know his his main job is to you know nobble them or kill them uh and uh, you know, he's good at it. He's an ex-soldier, uh, but he absolutely hates it. Uh, he hates the violence. He hates the killing. He tried to get out of the game fairly early on. And uh, it, the, the series pretty much starts off with the security services, you know, extorting him into going back to working for them. Um, and, you know, it, it's, there's this sort of th- very dark theme of self-destruction going all the way through it that's just amazing.
2: It really is. It's a great show. If you haven't seen it, there's not. I've I've seen a number of them, but a lot of them are really hard to come by. And um, yeah. and I guess it is because they you know they reuse tapes. But hmm.
0: what a terrible practice! <laughs> I know.
2: Right? Well, that was that was uh, British television <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. They
1: uh, they tend yeah. to reuse. Everything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Right. Wasn't there? There were some lost episodes of Doctor Who found in Africa recently, right? Um, right. Um, yes. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, I just found A Man Like Me. I was looking for things to link. Uh, YouTube has the episode uh, A Man Like Me from, from Cowan, Cowan. So Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It has a lot of sandbaggers. That's how I've been catching it. Sandbaggers is. Uh,
3: I, yeah, two. I
1: ended up with oh, nice. uh, a lot of the all
2: of the Sandbaggers as well
3: somehow or another. I can't say. Yeah, it. I've got, I've got all hmm. the DVD box sets of both the Sandbaggers and Callan and and go back and rewatch hmm. them fairly regularly. Excellent. Well, well, Let's, thank thank you all very much for having me on. Oh I it has no, it's been anytime. great chatting with you all.
2: Anytime. You're always welcome. Thank you. Absolutely.
3: If I can just finish up with the obligatory sales plug, um, oh, the, yeah. the, the oh, level, yeah. <laughs> the World War Cthulhu Kickstarter um, will be going on until the 21st of July, um, so you've got probably just over a week if you're listening to this when it's fresh. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's all funded, so we're into stretch goals now. But you know, if you want to see some of those stretch goals happen, please go and back it. Um, there is one, you know, there's at least one item and possibly two in there that are going to be Kickstarter exclusive. So there is the limited edition of the core book, uh, which um, is embossed and foil stamped. Uh, so if you want that, that that's, that's part of the Kickstarter. And... I'm not entirely sure about the um, the handouts. Uh, you know, the next thing on the st- uh, the, the, the stretch goals is we've got uh, a bunch of handouts of you know ephemera and um, uh, documents and memos and so on that can be used as props in the game. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's going to be available after the Kickstarter. Um, yeah,
0: so you're about three thousand pounds away from that, or, or a little less than that. From little hitting, less, hitting so, that right well, now. So, what well, would that okay. be in dollars? Is that going to be around five thousand, six thousand dollars?
3: Uh, something like that. It, yeah. it's, it's going to be about four and a half. Uh, sorry, forty-five 5,000. Uh, sorry, you're asking three thousand dollars. Yeah, that's about four thousand five hundred uh, dollars. Okay. Three. Yeah, 3, let, let, me tra- let me let me let me try that again. Three thousand pounds. <laughs> that's about four and a half thousand dollars.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: I've backed it, guys. I don't know about y'all. Um, I don't have, and I'm notoriously cheap these days. Um, so that just, you know, says something. <laughs> I, I really yeah, like I'm, this, I'm, this setting in general. I'm yeah, fan of World War Cthulhu, and uh, I well, come on, Burnside and Tinger Taylor soldier spy <laughs> with Cthulhu. Come on, you can't yeah. I have, do have to enjoy it as a player in your
0: game. Say that again. Do it. I have to enjoy it as a player in your
1: game. Oh yeah, that would be great.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, we should if,
1: definitely do uh, do some aps of this. I think.
3: Well, oh, I mean, yeah. if 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 at some point uh, you folks and and Dan had the time, I'd love to run some for you.
1: Oh my god. Mm, yeah. Oh
2: yes. Yeah. Sold. Done. <laughs> so what are you doing Tuesday?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say, Scott, I absolutely love uh, from Nameless Horrors. Oh my god! Now the snare is a. Uh, uh, the name of the scenario give me the uh, the one lightly skinned you know uh,
3: oh the, for, the one uh, the one you played Scientologist no we don't we don't use the S word when talking about this scenario. yes yeah yeah the space between that's the one yes yes <laughs> oh, gl- oh glad my. you enjoyed it yeah I had a lot of fun well I'm that.
0: running that I'm running it at a convention uh, here locally in uh, three weeks so
3: oh wow Oh, I'd love yeah. to
0: hear how it goes. Oh God, I'm I'm so excited! I've got everything <laughs> printed off. Everything's ready. I'm I'm ready to go. So
3: awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I've I've run that. Oh gosh, about uh, a dozen times, I guess, at various conventions now. And um, yeah, I'll be really interested in knowing whether you managed to avoid a TPK on it because I, I think I've only had survivors in about two or three runs. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's nice.
2: awesome. that's a fun one (laughs) we want to hear from our listeners and we have lots of different ways you can reach out to us
1: our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com we also have a twitter account at mu underscore podcast And you can join our IRC channel on the feedback page of the website.
0: We have a Providence, Rhode Island Island voicemail number, area code 401-400-0-MUP. That's 401-400-0687. Or you can use the SpeakPipe link located on the website. Ask us a question, leave us a letter, say who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University podcast. And give us a hearty go pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods.
2: Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com/slash 84. That's the number 84.
1: And our forums are at mu-podcast.com/slash campus, and so are the forums of the good friends of Jackson Elias, by the way. Come join right. the community and, yeah, welcome. I That's something
2: <laughs> we, we to should, probably should have mentioned that in the news, but oh well, we're doing it in the end. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think we have mentioned in the news before. Yes, yes, you definitely yeah. have. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Our forums are at mu slash campus, and so are the forums of the good friends of Jackson Elias. Come join the communities. ambitions. You're going to finish <laughs> that? What the fuck? Okay. Something.
2: <laughs> Go ahead, John. We'll just leave that in there. Okay. Chad, look the fool. Sounds <laughs> good.
0: And a hearty thank you to our patrons. So, again, thank you so very much for your support. Thank you. Thank you again. And thank you for joining
2: us for for another episode. Class is dismissed.
1: The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University Podcast under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License.